Hello, good afternoon. Today on my podcast, I'm delighted and honored to have the Dean of the uh, National School of Tropical Medicine, Dr. Peter Hotez, who has been instrumental in developing one of our uh, COVID vaccines and has done a lot of work on viruses and parasites. Uh, Dr. Hotez is well-renowned in his work and uh, we're delighted to have you here. Dr. Hotez, tell me what took you into this field of parasitology and vaccines. Well, actually, most people know me for our, our COVID work, our COVID vaccine, but I'm my major interest for 40 years has been vaccines for parasitic infections. Uh, so I was a, an MD, PhD student at Rockefeller University and Weill Cornell Medical College back in the 1980s and started working on a human hookworm vaccine that now 40 years later is in phase two clinical trials and and came to Baylor and Texas Children's uh, about 12 years ago to start this new school of tropical medicine called the National School of Tropical Medicine and and a vaccine center at Texas Children's Hospital called the Texas Children's Hospital Center for Vaccine Development to make the vaccines that the big pharma companies ordinarily would not be interested in because they're for diseases of the poor without obvious financial return. So we have a human hookworm vaccine in phase two trials, a vaccine for intestinal schistosomiasis, which is a big problem in Africa and Brazil in phase two, a new Chagas disease vaccine, which affects both the gut and the heart that's going into phase one trials. And um, But then about 12 years ago, we started working on coronavirus vaccines because they were orphaned as well. Nobody cared about coronaviruses back then. And and at that time, we started working on vaccines for SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome, and then MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. When I say we, it's a team of about 25 scientists, and it's now co-headed by myself and my science partner for the last 20-plus years, Dr. Mary Elena uh, Botazzi. And and our team of scientists then took our SARS and MERS program, and when the COVID-19 sequence came online in BioArchive in January 2020, we pivoted our program, started making a low-cost global health version for a COVID-19 vaccine, which has now reached uh, almost 100 million doses in India and Indonesia. So it's, it's quite an extraordinary uh, story, uh, I think. So I understand you, correct me if I'm wrong, but you gave the rights to this vaccine uh, to various countries in the third world uh, for free. Is that right? Well, yes and no. We So the Baylor Licensing Office um, licensed the technology to vaccine producers in, in several countries, in, in Bangladesh, um, uh, with a, an organization called Incepta, uh, with to uh, Biopharma in Indonesia, to uh, to Biological E in India, and then one in, in Botswana. We actually had discussions with Pakistan as well, but the, the, they weren't they weren't as far along. And and the ones who actually wound up making it into vaccines that actually were delivered to people were the ones in India and Indonesia. So in India. Biological E made Corbivax, um, and Indonesia made uh, Indovac, which are were closely um, related. And we did this with no patent, minimizing strings attached, um, uh, in order to you know really this was our mission to to get vaccines to to people in low and middle income countries. So it's been 
It's it's been very satisfying. The vaccine for India, Corbivax, was used for the primary immunization of uh, adolescent kids, 12 to 14, 75 million doses went into arms of kids starting in early 2022. And uh, another 10 million plus adult boosters. And then in uh, Indonesia, uh, another, we think around 10 million doses went out, including the president of Indonesia took the vaccine. And the Indonesia story is kind of an, has an interesting twist because, you know, all of the, our, the process that we make the vaccines is an older one done through microbial fermentation and yeast. That's recombinant proteins. The similar technology is used to make the hepatitis B vaccine um, that probably you've given your, your, your patients. And, and, um, and one of the things about it is it, you can do it without, you, without using anything from an animal or human source, in, in a sense, a vegan technology. Although I'm told if it's tested in animals, it's not truly vegan, but vegan-like. And as, as a consequence, um, the Indonesian group came into our labs, inspected the source reagents for everything that we used, and confirmed that there was no animal or human source. So they worked with their clergy to get it designated as halal. So I think wow. it's one of the first halal okay. vaccines for COVID-19. Okay. So it's really interesting when things go to scale, Things happen that you would never anticipate uh, uh, otherwise. So it's been very sad. And so the idea is that this could be used for uh, Muslim-majority countries uh, as well. And now we're making the uh, XBB booster version. So, you know, in the U.S., um, the XBB uh, booster is about to be authorized, the mRNA version. Well, we're making a low-cost global health recombinant protein XBB booster that uh, primarily partnering with the uh, Indian group on it, and we're hope, hopefully we'll make progress for that as well, as well soon as well. So, so you've been working on the coronavirus for a decade before it actually became a problem here in this country, and uh, was it an easy switch to address this virus, or was this just a another branch of what you were already doing. And, uh, well, you know, when we when we started with making the SARS vaccine, severe acute respiratory syndrome, if you remember that arose out of southern China in twenty in two thousand two and then um, spread into Toronto and, and, and elsewhere and it wasn't as wide, nearly as widespread as COVID, but it was quite lethal, so it, it mm -hmm. created a lot of concern. When we first heard about um, this new coronavirus out emerging out of Wuhan in central China in in 2019, the end of 2019, we first heard about it, I think, on New Year's Day 2020. Uh, I thought maybe it was going to be another SARS, it could be basically SARS again, or at least SARS-like. And we, you know, at that time, we had produced the vaccine, the drug substance of the vaccine, but we hadn't formulated it. And so the first thing we did was to call the NIH to see if our existing SARS vaccine could be repurposed to cross-protect against SARS-2 because the other name for COVID-19 is SARS-2. And there wasn't a lot of, not a lot of enthusiasm for that, but it was close enough that we could then look at the sequence, make some adjustments, and actually make the COVID-19 version, which went really well. It was, it was not, not a huge intellectual challenge to scale it up and make it, but it meant our scientists had to work in the labs during that terrible time in early 2020 when everything was shut down, but we got special permission to 
to do that and uh, made a really good vaccine. We tested it on non-human primates in collaboration with Emory University's Non-Human Primate Center, and and it was very protective. It looked as good as anything else that had been published on mRNA or adenovirus, and but at a fraction of the cost because that's one of the advantages of microbial fermentation. You know, it's pretty inexpensive. So it's a recombinant protein vaccine formulated on alum together with what's known as a CPG oligonucleotide. And and our co- collaborators at Biological E could do this for 2 to $4 a dose. I think the original uh, cost was something like 145 rupees a, a dose, which is about the least expensive of all the COVID uh, vaccines as well. So it, it checked a lot of boxes for global health. It was easy to scale and produce, low cost, great safety profile, just like the hepatitis B vaccine. Parents trusted it because they knew about the hepatitis B vaccine that they had already given. As I said, about as l- the least expensive you could possibly imagine. It's you know hard to imagine a, a better target product profile for for global health. So that was very, that was very satisfying. So when was the jump between the traditional vaccine uh, manufacturer and the mRNA vaccines that came along? Yeah. So when um, when. When Operation Warp Speed, which was the U.S. program to support it, came into play and during the Trump administration, we said, "Hey, don't don't only focus on new technologies because they can't. There's a learning curve before you can know how to scale them. You know, include ours in the mix." But we weren't a pharma company, so we didn't have the lobbying clout and everything else. So we were never part of Operation Warp Speed, which was a disappointment. Um, they were all focused on the shiny new toys, you know, mRNA and adenovirus and particle vaccine. And then we got some interesting vaccines, but we weren't part of that. So we had to raise money privately here in, in Texas. And fortunately, um, there's been, there, it's as you know, the Texas Medical Center is an extraordinary philanthropic environment. Houston is too, right? Um, and so we'd gotten money from the Clayburg Foundation, the, the King Ranch, the Dunn Foundation, MD Anderson Foundation. Tito's Vodka came through with $2 million wow. for us. Um, mm-hmm. Not that I'm endorsing alcohol <laughs> consumption, but uh, we, anyway, you don't want the Russian stuff anyway, right? No, so, so, there, so there you are. So, so that, that really helped. We got about $400,000 from the National Institutes of Health as a, mm-hmm. as a bridge grant, an R56 uh, grant. Mm-hmm. So, um, but it was enough. You know, it wasn't the billions, but it mm-hmm. was enough to to get moving and to transfer the mm-hmm. technology. So, do yeah. you think there's much difference in the efficacy between the the newer messenger RNA vaccines and what we've traditionally? Produced? Well, well, one of the problems in India they don't they don't have mRNA vaccines, so they're not there. So we can never do a head-to-head comparison. Uh, uh, in India, but the level of virus neutralizing antibodies looks about equivalent. So some feel that that's a pretty good surrogate correlative of, of protection. So likely it, it's as good. Now in Indonesia, they're using uh, Indovac, their version of our technology, as a booster for mRNA. And, and I'd like to see it get into the U.S. So we're mm-hmm. starting to have those discussions with. Uh, uh, the FDA and elsewhere, whether we could get that into the U.S. still. 
Now, it seems as if we are going to see uh, upgraded vaccines every year or so with newer strains. Is this now something that uh, is equivalent to our getting the flu vaccine every year? It's hard, hard to know. I mean, right now we're starting to see an acceleration of a whole group of these XBB variants. They're kind of next-generation Omicron variants. And there is an XBB booster that should be out soon, and, and, I'll, and I'll be at the front of the line to get it. Um, but what happens after, as we head into 2024 is, is unknown. Will it be an annual occurrence? Will this be the last gasp of, of COVID-19? Will, be, will we continue to be chasing variants? You know, I've sort of long given up predictions, uh, you know, after, after, after Omicron. Do you think the virus is becoming less lethal? I think it's, people often say that, and I do think there is more upper respiratory replication of this, these Omicron variants as compared to the original lineage or or Delta. But I think we have to be careful because, you know, one of the reasons we're seeing fewer deaths and hospitalizations is because by now, pretty much every American almost has either been infected vaccinated, infected and vaccinated, or vaccinated with breakthrough infection. So so that is creating some level of community-wide um, resistance that's lowering the hospitalizations. But it's important not to be complacent with that. I think if you've not, if you've never been vaccinated and all you've had is a previous Omicron infection, the Omicron infections are their derivatives like BA2, BA4, 5, now this new, these new XBB don't seem to give you as much enduring protection as the earlier ones. So you have a lot of vulnerability there. So I think you know people too often look at the the demographics, the epidemiology, and say, eh, "I'm not going to worry. That's still a low level of hospitalization." But you have to be mindful of your own situation. And if you've not been boosted recently, you do have that vulnerability. So if you've not gotten your bivalent vaccine, last year, last September, when it first came online. That had, that's the first one that had one of the Omicron. It had the original plus BA4, BA5. You're vulnerable. And in my case, I got a second uh, bivalent booster last spring. But even I feel uncomfortable. So for instance, um, as I head into September, I have a new book coming out. I have some events planned in New York and in, in Washington. I'd feel a lot better if I had that XBB booster. I was hoping it'd be available by August, but it doesn't look that way. Okay. Now, th- there's much talk uh, in the press and may- or maybe on social media about um, whether you should get your um, COVID vaccine with your flu vaccine or separate them and what gives you more immunity and whether you should have it on one side of the arm and the other f- vaccine on the other side. Uh, what is your opinion on this? Here, here's the way I look at it. Think, think of it as, you know, we've got a whole new adult vaccine ecosystem out there now because now we've got a brand new RSV vaccine, respiratory syncytial virus vaccine that just came online. I just got it. There's your XBB COVID booster. There's your influenza vaccine. And, and by the way, as we start reaching our age, we have to think about Prevnar, the pneumococcal vaccine, and Shingrix, and Tdap. So there's a lot, there's a lot in play. What I'm recommending is this. Um, I'm getting my, I just got my RSV vaccine. It's a brand new vaccine. 
respiratory syncytial virus causes a fair number of deaths in seniors every, every year. Um, and I got that because I don't want to worry about any kind of immunological interference with other vaccines. It's not a strong call. It's a weak call, but there is some evidence to suggest there could be some Im modest immunological interference if you get the RSV and the flu vaccine at the same time. So I said, look, let me just take it off the table. RSV vaccine's here now. Rather than just twiddling my thumbs waiting for the XBB booster to come along, let me be proactive, get the RSV vaccine now, which mm -hmm. I did. And then, you know, and as soon as the XBB booster comes online, which I guess would be about probably uh, middle, the la middle third week of September, then I'll get the XBB. And then I could decide, do I want to get my flu vaccine a week or two ahead of that or, or after that? Uh, I, don't, I don't like getting the, you can, you can get the, um, you, you can get them in combination according to the CDC. I don't like it because some people have bad reactions, inflammatory reactions or don't respond well uh, to a vaccine. And if you're getting two at the same time, that, that you know, could cause mm -hmm. additional uh, issues in addition to immunological interference. So bottom line is RSV vaccine now, uh, XBB in a few weeks, and at some point before we enter into October, I'll get my flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. Now, just changing tack a little bit, there's some talk about uh, the COVID vaccines not causing more issues with teenagers and youngsters with regard to heart disease, and is there something to that? Well, there is um, a rare, rare instances. The 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 frequency, depending on whose numbers you look at, and is where between one and ten thousand, one thirty thousand of uh, uh, myocarditis, inflammation of the heart with with the vaccine. It seems to resolve uh, most of the time, but some people have been hospitalized. Have been hospitalized. I always point out that the risk of myocarditis and other heart conditions from the actual virus is still higher than the vaccine. So, so go ahead and get it. So I'm encouraging people to get the XBB um, uh, booster as, as a consequence. And so exactly what the recommendation will be from the ACIP, mm -hmm. the um, Committee on Immunization Practices, which will make the final sign-off in the middle of September, for which age groups we'll see, but I think most adults and kids will be eligible for it. Now, do you think that the availability of antivirals like Paxlovid are going to affect uh, people's willingness to get the vaccine, or do you think Paxlovid is really uh, damage control after an infection. Yeah, I don't think you want to rely on Paxlovid uh, because antivirals are never as effective as a preventative like, like a vaccine. Um, but if you're unfortunate enough to get breakthrough infection and you diagnose positive, then yeah, you want to take Paxlovid. So for instance, I had a breakthrough infection in 2022, probably with the BA2 one, and and I got on Paxlovid uh, right away. Paxlovid, like a lot of antiviral drugs, works by interfering with virus replication. And the reason that's important to know is there tend to be two phases to all viral illness. There's the part where the virus is replicating in your body, and then there's a second phase, which is the host inflammatory response to that replicating virus. Mm -hmm. So if you take Paxlovid early while the virus is still replicating, that's when it's most effective. If you wait too long, 
and the inflammatory response has already kicked in, there's probably not going to, you're not going to see much therapeutic benefit. So, and, and that's important to know because I think people wait too long before taking Paxlovid. Mm-hmm. You know, you feel crummy, you take, you do your home test, it's positive, you talk to your internist and you tell your internist, well, you know, I don't feel that bad, I guess I'm going to wait it out. And then, and a lot of times it's fine, but oftentimes it's not. And then when you start to progress, then you're already mm-hmm. too late in the illness yeah. for the Paxlovid to be effective. So I think the internists have been a little slow on the uptake sometimes of recommending Paxlovid as our patient. So I actually have uh, a prescription in my home, you know, and, and, mm-hmm. and I take it with me when I travel sure. when I get yeah. Paxlovid. Is there a downside to taking Paxlovid? Uh, you know, well, the only, well, there's two potential downsides. One, there's a lot of drug-drug interactions. So you you don't want it, and, and since most of the time it's seniors who are taking it and at greatest risk, and a lot of seniors are on medication of one sort or another, mm-hmm. you want to have that discussion with your primary care provider. Do I have to go off any of the medicine before I take Paxlovid? So certain anti-arrhythmics and others, so you want to have that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, the other... Uh, well, it's not. I can't say it's a fun drug to take. Not that any medicine is fun, but if um, it has kind of a metallic taste to it, and if you've ever seen what the pills look like, they look like small submarines, right? So, <laughs> I so I, in my case, when I last when I took it, I had some anticipatory gagging, you know, even before <laughs> taking it. I think um, the other is there has been this kind of rebound phenomenon um, where um, if you take it, you're you're you feel like you're cured, and then a few days later you have a rebound case of it, and then you got to make a decision about taking it again. I see. Well, you know, vaccines have certainly saved hundreds of thousands, millions of lives uh, in their history. And uh, I'm very curious, malaria is a disease that very lethal in Africa and worldwide, really. Uh, and there's never been a vaccine. Is that just a difficult uh, concept? Are people working on it? Yeah, in fact, there are two new prototype vaccines that have now been approved. Uh, or one has been approved, and I think the other is about to. And the one that's been approved is called Moscarix, mm-hmm. also known as RTSS. It was developed at Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. It's been approved now in uh, several uh, and being used in several African countries. And then there's a second one, which goes by the memorable name of R21 Matrix M, referring to the uh, adjuvant in the R20, and that was developed out of Oxford. The RTSS was developed out of GSK, uh, based on Walter Reed uh, discoveries. so we make parasitic disease vaccines, not malaria, but for hookworm, schistosomiasis, and Chagas disease. And like the malaria vaccine, these are much tougher targets because they're not simpler organisms like virus. They're more complicated eukaryotic pathogens. And what mm-hmm. that means is the effectiveness of these vaccines is not as high. So you're looking at 30 40%, maybe up to 50% reduction in severe illness. And people say, well, gee, if that's the case, then it's you probably can't halt existing measures. So just because you have a malaria vaccine, you're still going to need bed nets and anti-malarial mm-hmm. drugs around. And, and, and that's true. 
So I think, you know, for these parasitic disease vaccines, we have to recognize that they're not going to be replacement technologies. Mm -hmm. They're going to be companion technologies. And, and we've never had to do that before. And so I think there's going to be a learning curve uh, from the public health agencies, the health systems of how you manage expectations for a vaccine that is not the same level of effectiveness, but still can be life-saving and, and still make a big difference. Sure. That, and that reminds me, uh, Helicobacter pylori is a class one carcinogen with uh, a, and a major cause of stomach cancer in the Far East. And are there vaccines in development for that? There have been. There have been. Um, uh, I, I can't tell you the exact progress that's been happening, but but there but there are some exciting new vaccines for other GI pathogens. There's several Shigella vaccines out there, uh, several for ETEC, enterotoxigenic mm -hmm. uh, E. coli. Um, those are those are pretty exciting. Um, Salmonella vaccines. So I think you are going to see um, a, a range of them. Um, so the question then is becomes how will they be incorporated, how will they be used, I think is going to be of, of utmost importance. Um, and there's others which we could probably use vaccines for, but there's not a big effort to begin them. For instance, cryptosporidiosis, which um, some studies suggest is an important pathogen in kids. Um, you know, we could probably use a, a cryptosporidiosis uh, vaccine. Um, so I think you're going to see a wider range of new vaccine technologies. But, you know, we also have to contend that there's a pretty aggressive anti-vaccine movement out there that's trying to push back against the introduction of new vaccines. You saw this really play out with COVID-19 vaccines. And, you know, we're starting to hear rumblings even about the introduction of the malaria vaccine. So that's my new book that's uh, well, it's, uh, just out called The Deadly Rise of Anti-Science. You know, how the anti-vaccine movement sort of pivoted over the last few years from false claims around autism, which is how I got involved because I have a daughter with autism and I wrote a book called Vaccines Did Not Cause Rachel's Autism About My Daughter, to becoming more of a political enterprise linked to extremism on the far right and how that's globalizing. So that's also something that we're going to have to contend with. You've probably seen it in your practice as oh, well. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a real shame. It's sad that uh, despite saving millions of lives, and some of these people who are opposed to vaccines are probably around today because they got that's vaccine. right that's right the estimates from my friend and colleague dr allison galvani at yale she's an epidemiologic modeler she estimates that mrna vaccines in the u.s um, save three million lives that's serious stuff and as opposed to in the book that i that have coming that's out now is it says that 200,000 americans needlessly perished died because they refused a COVID vaccine, especially during the Delta and BA1 waves yeah. when vaccines were widely available. That's extraordinary, right? 200,000 really needless deaths. And they, were, and they were victims yeah. of this organized disinformation campaign. So it talks about how, how we, you know, reports on it and how we manage it. Well, Dr. Hotez, it's been a very enlightening and uh, interesting talk. Uh, we thank God for vaccines and for people like you because you do make a difference saving millions of lives and that is nothing to be taken lightly. Well, thank you, Dr. Kresh. You know, it's um, 
it's a real privilege. I'm sure you feel the same way to be part of this extraordinary Texas Medical Center. There's no place quite like it in terms of the strength of the science and medicine here and interactions with colleagues, and you've been a great friend and colleague, and it's, uh, I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you today. Thank you very much.